Welcome, everyone, to the AI in Business podcast. My name is Matthew DeMello. I'm senior editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Daniel Fagella, Emerge CEO and head of research, returns to the show to host today's conversation. Today's guest on the program is John Bohannon, director of science at Primer AI. Primer is a security AI company serving Fortune 500 companies and multiple defense agencies in the U.S. federal government. Together with Daniel, John pulls apart what makes the Ukraine war truly unique in the scope of both history and technology and how AI and particularly open source AI is playing an integral role in the conflict on both sides. This episode is sponsored by Primer. And without further ado, here's their conversation. John, welcome to the program. Hey there, Dan. Glad to have you with us. We are diving into a very prescient topic. For many of our previous episodes on defense, John, it was somewhat hypothetical AI in defense. And now we're uh, at a time where actually defense is still somewhat relevant. There are bombs dropping in places, there are tanks being deployed, there are drones flying, and the Ukraine is a hot topic in the news and continues to be so. I'd love to talk a little bit about you got the technology perspective and you guys are working with the big agencies. When you look at what's happening in the Ukraine and where data and AI are starting to come to life, what are some of those pockets that are really indicative of where this tech is headed? Yeah, so just to set the stage, one of the one of the strange things about this conflict in Ukraine is that it's both a throwback, and I mean way back, to kind of World War II era war fighting, trenches, tanks, dirty boots running to from A to B, carrying things. And also very much a modern war, and if not like a sign of, of the future of war. So some aspects that are really new. First of all is just, this is intelligence gathering that is symmetric. This is not an insurgent warfare where one side has the satellites and the, you know, the, all the computers yes, and all, yes, the, yes, all the yes. gadgets, yes. and the other doesn't. Both sides have access to modern computing and tools and all the tricks. And so... What this becomes is a game of speed and coordination. And computers just make speed and coordination possible in a way that was never possible in World War II, yep. let alone in the 80s. Yeah. Another aspect of it, which is really striking, is it's now possible for analysts, intelligence analysts, to be effective without having to have the relevant language skill. You can have someone who's not fluent in Russian, not fluent in Ukrainian, still be effective because machine translation has become so good. Yeah. Well, I, I was, yeah, I was like, I think for most people, that's the last thing right there. Like, oh, tell me about the tanks and the drones. But you're right. Yeah. yeah. Just listening in now, it's practically crystal clear. You might, you might miss some of the nuance, but the big picture mm -hmm. is going to be there. Okay. That's a good one to write down. And uh, of course, another aspect of this that's at least unusual for such a symmetric conflict is that Cyber warfare and information warfare are equal parts of the equation. And so both sides are very actively doing ISR activities. And both parties have access to cyber capabilities, defensive and offensive. And all of this is very machine driven. So that's new. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a whole hidden side to this war, which is machine intelligence. Something that people do notice is like, oh, you know, drones, so almost DIY drones are playing such a big role. That I don't think is that new. I think what's new about it is that it's so cheap and accessible. But that's not so much an AI story. 
as much as the, the hidden part of this conflict, how people are getting the information they're getting and acting on it and coordinating. So that's, that's the big new thing. Got it. So let's, let's roll into that. So how they're getting the information, you know, distilling it, acting on it. And you know, we're patently aware of how important that is, you know, whether it was the older Project Maven kind of stuff, you know, satellite things or, or newer things with even social media, f- picking up on what terrorist groups are jumping across what Southeast Asian islands or something. The relevance for analysts has been there for a bit, but now it's, like you had said, it's two parties going at it with those kind of capabilities and seeing where yeah. that's taking us. <laughs> you know, I think the propeller spinning on a drone is certainly not an AI story, but from what I gather, the vision data potentially is is relevant. I imagine the satellite data is there as well. Maybe there's some boots on the ground, sort of ground robotic stuff too. But of course, there's also intercepting communications, translating, and then summarizing that kind of information. Yep. You're going to have a bigger panoply of the kinds of data intake, distillation, and use than maybe I would. Lay out some of the menu of the kinds of activity there that is starting to define this conflict. So as we dig into that, what I'd really like to do is share with your listeners this very striking fact. It's, this is hyper niche, but I think it's really interesting. You know, when wars were fought, until recently, the technologies involved were very much owned by the military, developed by the military or for the military. And what's new is that a lot of the most powerful technologies are open source, available freely on the internet mm. for anyone to grab and develop. And so really, your limitation now is not the military-industrial complex having the muscle to pay for these research labs and build things. Now it's more, do you have the ML engineers who are savvy and quick and you know, enough hacker, of a hacker to take these, these uh, open-source software tools off the shelf and develop them into a tool? So those drones that are running around with grenades and dropping them on enemies is a case in point. The model that powers them is almost certainly this open source model called YOLO. Uh, look it up. Anyone oh, who's man. curious, just look up uh, Computer Vision YOLO. You'll find lots of funny backstories. The original creator of YOLO has disavowed himself from it, but it's an open source project. So the whole world owns it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, what it's made possible is to endow a machine with the basics of vision. You can recognize objects. You can, you know, once you can do that, you can reason over them. And the new thing that uh, is dramatically open and different and making a difference are language models. So I'd say those are the two big flavors of, of technology that are driving the AI side of the war. Vision and language yeah. sort of work there. Yeah. And I, I can imagine clearly so many different kinds of technology coming together. But I think that those are really good lenses to think through in many regards here. And maybe we can talk a little bit about both of them. We'll talk vision first. You know, you were just talking about YOLO. Let's talk about that open source thing. That's really yeah. curious. So yeah. that, because there's a meta picture there that's really changes the game in some regard, right? Where the best German tank designs were not published in some magazine that Americans could just put together, right? It didn't that's work, right. It didn't work like that. Let alone was, you know, uh, a 3D printer in everyone's living room capable of downloading a tank and making it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We're, we're just, that was not the world of 1942, but we're now in a space where a lot of the raw capability, language and vision-wise, is open source. And and so now it feels to me as though, and maybe you're seeing this boots on the ground, like you said, do you have the ML engineers to turn it into a tool? So the capabilities are just sort of out there. A college kid can you know detect fruit on a table to pass his computer science class, and mm-hmm. we can also 
drop a grenade right into the top of a, some tank entrance somewhere uh, of some, right. some Russian and, and blow That's them right. up. You, you had framed that the question now is, do you have the ML engineers and the way to, to use it? Is that kind of the question now? Like, hey, maybe we could even plan on a lot of the strongest raw capability for data intake, reasoning over data, et cetera. A lot of the best raw stuff is just going to be for free. And it's going to be who can package, bundle, streamline it along with IT, along with an interface where now we can do something with it. Um, is, that, yeah. is that the and right way to think about this? Absolutely. And, and I think the picture you should have in your mind is not of a very sophisticated equivalent of a tech company behind this. The tools are getting so easy to use that you know, just a small group of hackers with the right incentives can build almost anything. Yeah. I think maybe the better way to think about this then in some regard is like, hey, at some point we discovered oil and uh, gasoline and we, you know, we could power, I don't know what tanks ran on, imagine different tanks, different fuels maybe, but oil was just now a thing where I could use it, you guys could use it. Like it was a technology that was then like, I guess we all kind of know how to burn fuel now. Or like, oh, I guess we all know the Bronze Age occurred, right? I guess we yeah. all know how to make bronze now. So this is sort of just a technological level up where, well, maybe we have differing fluencies in leveraging it, but everybody's got bronze. And it sounds like what you're saying is there's different fluencies of leveraging it, but everybody's got vision. Everybody's got NLP. It's just about right. how how well how sharp you can make your blades, how well your furnaces work, how you can you know align your forces to use these new kind of weapons. It, it almost feels analogous in some way. So yeah, we've gone from scarcity to plenty. Yeah. And and that means that the game is no longer who's got the magic thing, but who's got the bigger, better, faster version of the thing. Yeah. So the thing that has gone from scarcity to plenty is artificial intelligence. Yeah. So it is now on tap and it's just a question of how powerful and how many capabilities you have versus your adversary. And, and by the way, another aspect of this that makes this so tricky is that a lot of these conflicts are now playing out in the public sphere on the internet. And so, you know, information warfare and cyber warfare make everyone a combatant, like all of us. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the stakes have also gotten very, very high. That shift towards sort of the cyber domain, big, big conversation, I actually talked to, you know, one of your founder Sean there about that topic a little while ago. And I think there's a whole lot to unpack just there. Let's earmark that. I would like to unpack the cyber side too, but let's quickly dip into vision and language. And then we can translate that to what feels like the non-defense world, but is increasingly becoming weaponized. So first, maybe on vision, people think about drones and they say, okay, that's something. They think about satellites uh, and they say, okay, that's something. We're looking at movements of of, uh, tanks and personnel and equipment. We're, we're estimating how well supply chains are, are working. We know how long it takes for them to get to an A to a B, and maybe that'll help affect our timing. Where else are you seeing vision wake up in this conflict and become more powerful and, and useful? One of the double-edged swords that uh, is becoming more and more important is being able to glean information from heterogeneous, very low-resolution sources. So to paint a picture, imagine... You'd love to know where the enemy is and what they're up to, but you don't have eyes in the sky. There's no obvious way to get sort of real-time footage of them. But what you do have is a huge collection of images being taken just by everyone all over the world at a certain location. Now, let's imagine you have 
tens of thousands of, of images, selfies, you know, stuff being published right on the open internet, all from a relevant location. Little tiny time slices from uh, you know, a whole period. Now, having a team of humans make sense of such a data set and construct a model of reality that, can, that you can use to deduce anything is, is nearly impossible. It puts Sherlock Holmes to shame. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. But with artificial intelligence, you can, you can actually start to make progress on such a puzzle. And so that's one example of how computer capabilities augmenting a human investigator starts to make a huge difference. They sometimes call it data fusion because data you're, fusion, you're yeah, yeah. use that vision data with other streams of data to fill in missing parts of the puzzle. And this is very much a machine domain. I think this is really interesting. So I think our audience probably is aware like, okay, we can detect that's a tank. We can detect here's the speed of movement. But what you're talking about is something very different. This is the amalgamation of completely disjointed sources of images into a yeah. picture of what is. And I would surmise, I mean, it sounds actually very challenging. Somebody's got to be combing Instagram and Twitter and whatever Russian social media is out there. Somebody's got to be scraping that stuff, finding pixel similarities that give us some percent accuracy that it's within one of these areas. And then from there, there's got to be some model that based on trees, skylines, soil color, whatever, can sort of, again, do another approximation of where within that matrix that, that graphic might be taken. Am I picking up where you're putting down well, or how would you describe how this works? You because are, this is a fascinating use case. You are, and there's, and there's one more crucial piece of this, Please. which is there's a human in the cockpit. So that's how this really works. Uh, if, if what you're imagining is some sort of black box that you know, is slurping up the internet and then telling you, you know, things you need to know. That's not how it, that's not how it works. What you need is a, an expert human analyst who is testing hypotheses, actively looking for something, trying to figure out a story. And so there, what becomes really crucial is the UI, that user interface. And, you know, this is kind of the unglamorous part of, of technology, but it's, it's the thing that makes such a difference. To make it very relatable, this thing called ChatGPT came out in something like November last year. Yep. And essentially, the AI muscle behind it had been around for long before. The new thing was packaging it into a better interface that just made it so breezy easy for anyone to use. And so UI really makes all the difference. And that's all the more important in a situation like national security, uh, you know, where time is of the essence, so much is at stake, subtle errors can be disastrous. So how do you make a human computer interface that makes it hard to make dangerous mistakes and easy to realize how you're navigating through this high dimensional space? Yeah. And, and, and again, to be able to sort of parse that out and put it in front of people, and I mentioned before sort of the social media example of where are the, where is this group of terrorists operating in the some islands in Southeast Asia. Again, same ball game there. It's there's no machine that sort of detects them, says okay, 100% confidence, send the robot to go arrest them, right? There's a human who has a dashboard of an unlimited number of things. You mentioned Sherlock Holmes, people talk about the needle in the haystack, whatever you want to say. And they're able to just see on the top of that list, what are the things most likely to be relevant and what's the timestamp on those? And then I, as a human, can connect the context with maybe some other source and build enough confidence to take action as opposed to having to look at every tweet and figure out which of these is being sent by some group. But also, nor do you want that, that dashboard in front of the human 
to be like the cockpit of the SR-71 Blackbird. Can't be complicated. I mean, you want an operator to be able to just quickly and intuitively understand the most important things, the few most important things. Yep. And that's that's the magic of a good UI. I wanted to share one other lesser known aspect that's Go for it. making all this technology so much more powerful. And that is definitely a big part of the story of, of modern conflict and Ukraine included. And that is that the artificial intelligence that powers these things is becoming multimodal. So rather than having a unimodal artificial intelligence, you know, by which I mean, here's a model that knows how to read and write over here separately. Here's a model that knows how to see things and recognize things. Here's another model completely separate that knows how to listen and turn your language into text or someone's text into, into spoken language. All these things are coming together into a single multimodal artificial intelligence. To give you a good intuition for how that truly works, here's how it works. Let's say that you're trying to find a tank with a big letter Z on it. Sure. Let's say that's what you're looking for. And you've got just a million photos and there's plenty of tanks. Very, you know, like, how do you find that tank that you know might have a Z somewhere on it? Or, or is a certain color or whatever. It's really tricky. But nowadays, what's possible is to just say what you want, and then the machine will find what you want. In the opposite direction, you can just say what's in here, and it can go and look and then describe for you in natural, fluent English, just like you know, just like a human would, yeah. what's in there. And it's possible because what we've done is we've created a single high-dimensional space called an embedding space. This is, this is the only technical term I'll, I'll <laughs> go, force on you today. Go for it. No, no, no. This is all good. But, I'm, I'm genuinely interested but this, here. But this is the good stuff. So, you know, this high-dimensional embedding space used to be a home just for language or just for vision stuff or just for this or just for that. And now we've figured out how to make a single unified embedding space that has an address somewhere in that high-dimensional space for everything. Objects that you can see, words that you say, you name it. It's a single embedding space. And so... What happens is when you ask the machine, hey, I'm looking for a tank with a, with a letter Z on it, it actually encodes what you said into this high-dimensional vector space, which puts it somewhere. I mean, geographically, like, boop, that's where your question lives. And then it just does a nearest neighbor search. This is a data science term where you're looking around in the neighborhood and you say, okay, well, what images are really close to what you just described? And then it pulls them back, ranks them by literally how far they are from what you asked for and shows you. Yeah. Neat, huh? Yeah, no, I totally. I mean, well, and it's it's been fascinating to see this stuff in practice across these early demos, even just what people are able to put up on Twitter, never mind, you know, what's probably out there in battlefields and initial startup products and things like that. From what I gather, knowing a little bit about this space, we'll talk about text. Now that we've talked a bit about vision, and now you've bridged the gap between vision and text with this new technology, where right now I think even many people see Dale and GPT as a completely different ecosystem, but increasingly, maybe not so much. The real hurdle, which you mentioned about ChatGPT, is kind of the user interface. So, wow, we might just be able to, in natural language, say what we want to see. Show me more of this. Is there anything of this kind in there? We'll take away the ones that have this to do with them or whatever. There might be a time where simply speaking to the screen or, or typing simple prompts couldn't just conjure, 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 and sort through so much information at an unbelievably fast speed. The challenge in that regard would be 
what's a user interface where those prompts are natural, where it's not confusing when I talk to the thing and when I talk to it, what's it going to display and where, right? That has to bubble up intuitively. And it feels to me like that's the art and science here because we're going to get to a place where it can do it. The question is just, can you structure a UI where someone can do that fluently? Yes. Well, in the limit, I think if I had to guess what that interface is going to look like, it would be a lot like Jarvis from uh, the Marvel yeah, universe. Yeah, 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 so yeah. Iron Man's, Iron Man's AI sidekick. The reason I bring that up is because it's a pretty good imagination of what is arguably one of the most natural ways to interact with any system. Just, just talk. Just say in language what you need and then have a visual component. So the heads-up display is a really nice example of a complementary visual. So you know, imagine rather than Jarvis, you've got some team of human experts on the other end of the phone. You know, that's the way it is today. Every operator in a conflict, if things are all aligned and everything's working and it's well connected, and this is you know one of the most crucial things, they'll be supplied with a team, a remote team who's pouring over the data for them. You know, the operator on the ground doesn't need to do all that. But you can only have so many analytical teams hooked up to so many operators. You know, it's, it's zero sum. So I think the tendency is that AI is going to become that virtual operator team for every operator. So everyone, everyone on the ground will have access to effectively their own team. Yeah. that can pour over the data, answer their questions. And they could, you know, let's say you're, you're approaching some new territory. You know, you should be able to just ask, what do we know about this territory that matters to me right now and my team? What are the things that we've learned about in the past that matter right now? Yeah, incredible. I mean, and, and this sounds almost like, wow, wouldn't that be neat? But to be frank, this sounds like exactly right now stuff. Because right now I can throw into ChatGPT, you know, of everything in the Iliad, give me all references to crying that have to do with, you know, loss, and also give it to me in eight lines with a poetic flourish as if it was written by whatever, John Keats or something. And it'll do that. Yeah. It's like the, the technology doesn't even have to That's develop right. to do what you're saying. And so it's a very compelling vision. Ah, but there's a rub. Go ahead. There's a rub there. So you're, you're absolutely right that we are just so close to this promised land of uh, truly helpful AI yeah. uh, that truly knows more than any single human knows and you know can really answer almost any question. But that AI is only going to be as good as the data it was trained on and has access to yep. now. And so a really crucial missing part of the puzzle here is creating what I call AI harnesses. So these kind of systems that enclose an AI and force it to stick to the facts force it to be honest when it doesn't know something. That's actually very tricky. Oh, problem. yeah. Right now, we're not there. Yeah, for sure. No. Yeah. Not uh, but those harnesses are being built. And in fact, here, here at Primer, we're, we're building some of them ourselves. And it won't be long before everyone takes for granted that, you know, how could you, you know, of course, you use these kind of systems to get the best, most reliable performance out of these AI models. You know, it's crazy that you weren't back in the day. Yeah. Certainly the truth factor, we're, we haven't arrived there yet. And, and there's all kinds mm -hmm. of hypotheses about how we get there, about creating you know, skeletons of certainty that we can sort of extrapolate only a certain amount away from. There's a lot of, of theory around how that's going to go. And I think we are going to see a lot of success there, but it'll probably still be probabilistic on, on at least some level. Let's talk just a pinch about some of the text use cases. You mentioned something, you know, one of the first use cases that you said, which I think is great 
to shake people out of their perception of defense AI was the immediacy and accessibility of translation. Whether it's going to be you know a hard drive we find with some files on it, whether it's going to be emails that we can intercept, or whether it's going to be audio that we can intercept, all of a sudden that's going to be in English pretty quick with really strong levels of of certainty. What are some other areas where text starts to matter in a battlefield context? And if, if any of it crosses over with Ukraine, that'd be great, but I'd love to just get your take on this. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, one, one extra point about the translation <laughs> is that it's not just that machine translation is so good and fast now that you can just be a native English speaker and still operate in environments that have other languages. It's that the models themselves understand all the languages. So you can ask a question in English and it can go and actually get the answer from documents that aren't in English yeah. and then translate the answer for yeah. you. Because until recently, what we had to do, even you know the best AI companies, what we had to do was actually translate all of that non-English text into English and index that in a database. And then when you asked a question, we were actually hitting the translation. And that's dangerous because a lot of languages don't translate very well. Yeah. And you always lose something in translation. Always. Famously. Yes. And so what, something that's really new and, and powerful is that these models are truly multilingual. But as for another language use case, this is kind of a uh, bread and butter, unsexy aspect, but it's crucial. Is, and you, you actually hinted at it when you said, hey, you know, I can get an answer from GPT and, and it can write it in the format of a poem. Well, if you can write something in the format of a poem, you can also write it in the format of a standard military reporting exactly, document. Exactly, yeah. And, and man, procedure makes all the difference. When you stick to like formats, not only are you succinctly capturing the most important information that's needed for the use case, but on the other end, the, the person consuming this information knows what to expect, knows where to find those pieces of information. So, you know, that's, this is not a, uh, it's not a crazy, you know, mind-bending aspect of it, but it's surprisingly powerful and important. Yeah. I like that idea. It's not just, okay, we can translate. Oh, whenever we find something, we can translate it. To your point, maybe we don't even have the time to translate it. Maybe we're just saying, what does it say in here about supply lines and fuel levels? What does it say in here right. about levels of munition of different kinds or whatever the case may be? Yeah. Well, to make it very real, it's not unusual for a laptop to be obtained. After action, you've got some laptop and the team that obtains it typically will send that thing all the way to some headquarters for analysis. And it, you know, it could be weeks or months before anything, if ever, is gleaned from it. Yeah. But there might be information that's actually time sensitive and crucial. So how do you make it possible with something that could be carried like a luggage to actually read it all, no matter what language is in, no matter whether it's in handwritten notes, whether it's in another language, whether it's it's what the crucial information is actually hidden in a bunch of photos, no matter where yeah. the information is and what, what modality, what you want is a system that can make sense of it quickly and answer your questions directly. Yeah. You don't just want Google search on, you know, a million random files because now you're only as good as what you happen to know to look for and what yeah. keywords you can get. You want to be able to just say, here's what I need, and it'll go and do its best. Yeah. So, okay. Another sort of layer of language that maybe people wouldn't have expected when we got this, this interview started. We've unpacked so many different individual kind of, let's call it use case types, sort of this broader paradigm shift of every operator having this analyst squad, 
right, who can conjure forth this info. Of course, we need the intake to work. So there's going to be work on, can we get the data infrastructure in place where we can intake this stuff? You know, if it is, let's say photos, John, or if it is, you know, uh, hard drives, we have to boot up goofy files in different formats or whatever the case may be. If it is audio that we then have to transcribe, do we have the data infra to be able to sort of drink this stuff in, store it somewhere where we can nimbly access it? Then we've got to be able to have these user interfaces where analysts can be empowered by using it. There's a lot of forward movement to make the magic of this tech actually add value in the real world. There's so much to be built. Of course. So much to be built. Exactly. And now we're at a time where it's mission critical stuff. Talk a little bit about paradigm shift wise, culture change wise, investment wise, you know, what DOD leadership sort of what's going to be required on their side for this stuff to come to life. You guys have a dog in this fight, right? You sell into this space, but big picture, what kind of undergirding transformations have to occur for us to have that Jarvis experience? Well, I mean, this is nothing, this is nothing new or shocking, but modern militaries need to look more and more like tech companies. And so, you know, a very real example of that is how things are built or procured. And so, you know, you either build it yourself or you go buy it from someone. And on both those fronts, modern militaries need to evolve. Because if you have a, a process that g- generally takes 18 months, you say, hey, here's, here's my problem. Here's what I want you to build. Now go. Here's your time. Here's your budget. You know, if you over-specify what you need and how you want it done, by the time you get it back, the game has changed. The adversary has something different. The problem itself has evolved. You need to be agile. So agile is kind of a special magical word in the tech world. And um, you know, the essence of it is adapt on the fly. Don't set a goal and prescribe how to achieve it and then just you know, go after it for as long as it takes. Just assume that the ground's going to shift under your feet and be agile about it. And so that's a whole change in process. You know, how, how, do, you, how do you make teams agile? And then on the procurement side, my God, <laughs> there's so much good work to be done just by speeding things up, making it more of a, an actual competition between vendors. So many good tweaks to be made. And everyone in the military knows it. And everyone's gently nudging the giant machine in that direction. But it's really a lot of people stuff and procedure stuff. Culture. Yeah. Culture. You know, we, we had the head of the DIU on a couple of times, Mike Brown. Uh, I know they got a new guy in there now and the, the head of AI at the DIU and other folks in, in defense. And I, I think pretty ubiquitously, I mean, the culture thing is big in enterprise, but I think it's so much harder in the public sector. There's just so much more work to be done. But the leadership, they really have their head in the right space. I'm, I'm consistently impressed whenever I hear uh, military leadership talk about AI. They have exactly the right amount of urgency and street smarts. And that's you know, good. I, I'm consistently. Impressed. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I've, I've, there's certainly been folks I've talked to who really get it as well. And it's, it's great to hear you guys are interfacing with folks that sort of get it too. And I, I think the change is going to have to come from leadership, right? Because there's a lot of stodgy systems and people that, you know, stamp pieces of paper and they're perfectly good folks. But I don't exactly know if a radical alteration of what they do on a day to day is really felt as any kind of urgency on their side. I think leadership has to be able to say, not all of our primes can be people that only bend metal. You know, some of our primes need to be people that can write code. And, and that, you know, we, we got to stuff that rusts can't be 99% of what we do. And, and we're, by golly, they know, it. They, yeah, know. they know it, they know it. So that's the good news is that they do know it. So there's some of that, some of that change. Maybe let's talk practically, something to end on where maybe people can take it and run with it in addition to the cultural elements, which of course are very critical, John. 
this Jarvis experience, like you said, it's only as good as the data it trains on. What do we need to think about as defense leaders from a practical standpoint? As we go out into the world, we're going to now be able to collect. I mean, sensors are cheaper. We didn't even talk about that quite as much. But, you know, vision and audio and everything, you know, drinking in those laptops and satellites and whatever else it is, the, the whole internet we can suck into our darn computers now. What do we need to be thinking about from a data infrastructure, you know, the harmonization of this data, the storage, other things like that? How do we need to level up our perspective there to enable this? Because that's obviously a big part of making the transformation happen. Any any ideas there? Yeah, I'll just share one because there's so much to be said, of course. But one that's top of mind for me is how do we build trust? So, you know, if, if you're a leader and you're bringing AI into your into your organization, to get something done. I mean, the first first most important thing, of course, is to make sure you're actually getting something done. A lot of people bring AI to problem spaces without realizing it's yeah. not always the, the best tool. No. But let's say you you, know, you do you're convinced uh, it's the right tool for the job, and you wanna you wanna get working. Something that doesn't go out the window, but is often like low in the stack of cares, is how do I help my users learn to trust this system? And trust is a two way street. So. You know, as an as an example, let's use the case of an intelligence analyst who has a, an AI system that helps them read and write a lot faster and make sense of their area of responsibility a lot faster with greater depth, two to five, maybe even 10 X is the speed at which they can generate actionable reports that get passed up the chain so that action can be taken. That sounds great, but the whole thing falls on its face the moment a fatal mistake gets made because of something a machine said. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so how do you how do you create the systems around this technology and build it into the technology itself such that it becomes a known entity? You know, when, it, when a car crashes, people don't give up on cars because you know what happened, you know what went wrong, and you know how to build towards better, safer systems. That is an ongoing process with AI. So I think anyone who buys or builds an AI system today is part of this journey. And so you just have to get on board. You have to know that you're helping yourself and everyone around you to make this technology truly useful. And so that means thinking about things like, you know what, I know how to use it, but if I have someone uh, rotate in for six weeks to use this thing, can they get up to speed fast enough? How, how do they get confused? When a mistake happens, how quickly can we detect it? How far along the chain of causality does it go before we realize where the error, that, that an error happened and where it happened? And how can we tighten that nut? So, you know, th just the, the boring stuff of building well-engineered systems that people trust is something that is ongoing and you shouldn't assume that it's done and dusted and it's going to work like a lawnmower. No way, no how. I mean, that's that's one of the challenges to bigger transformation is building that trust and getting people to sort of jump on board, even if it's a vastly better but vastly different set up or workflow. You've got to figure out how much change can these folks endure? How do I feel? make them feel bought in on the way that we're setting this up to help their work so it doesn't feel like an imposition? It's, I think, a sign for the audience here that time and time again, John is bringing up the culture and the people side of things. Might be a little bit yeah. of a hint as to where some of the challenges are in this technology. It's kind of magic, but there's still some stuff we've got to do on the, the organizational side to make it come to life. John, I know that's all we have for time, but this has been a real blast to unpack this stuff with you. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, my pleasure. And thanks, thanks everyone for listening.
Wrapping up today's episode, I don't think we can emphasize with greater strength the importance of where Dan and John went in the conversation, particularly around humans being behind the dashboards of these AI capabilities. We see this in the defense sector pretty exclusively everywhere else. It moves towards a model of AI automation and then onto autonomy, which we've discussed, especially on our financial services platform. There's also the new and fascinating use case of single embedding space, blending vision and text. It really sounds like topic search and geolocation mapping through large language models and what John describes as nearest neighbor search. Very, very fascinating stuff. I wouldn't blame anyone for actually rewinding right now to the 20 minute point and listening to it again. I've actually done that a few times, not to be my own fanboy about it. Anyway, on behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast. 